This episode of the Rise Up Podcast features John DeLury, Senior Regional Director for Vote Solar. Nick and Amanda spoke with John about the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, which recently became law in Illinois. Before we get to the interview, I wanted to take a minute to ask you to support the MREA's Rise Up Scholarship Campaign and help us offer a meaningful work opportunity to a bright and talented person. Read about the program, learn about our inspiring partners, and make a donation at midwestrenew.org slash riseupgiving. Together, we can help create a more inclusive solar workforce and power a just energy transition. Today, we are talking to you on Friday, September 17th, two days after Illinois' governor signed the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act into law. I know this has been a really long time coming and has involved a ton of different people, and we are absolutely going to get into the details in just a little bit. But first, congratulations. How does it feel? Feels like a long time coming. I joined Vote Solar just a couple of years ago, and the mechanics for creating this bill were already a year underway. So it's been a long, winding road. But at the governor's signing ceremony on Wednesday, I finally felt that moment of release and, and pure elation. So I'm, I'm feeling good. I think I'm still riding the adrenaline rush. It's a really long bill. I know you were talking about that right before we started recording. Um, I'm wondering if you could give us super high level overview of exactly what it is and what it means for Illinois and Illinoisans and kind of break it down the elevator pitch for us. Yeah, and this is where I get really excited. This bill is like nothing I've ever seen, certainly in the Midwest, possibly in the country. And that's not just because of how quickly we're going to be putting megawatts on the board. It's also how comprehensive this legislation is. It's the first thing that I've seen firsthand that feels like an appropriate response to the urgency of the climate crisis in the way that it touches almost every sector of the energy economy. It's starting to make inroads on electrification of of transportation. It's looking at the actual structure of utilities and how we can reinvent that to align their incentives with fighting climate change. Um, And it does probably more for just transition work, uh, meaning, you know, providing this pathway for fossil fuel workers to enter and embrace the clean energy future than anything that I've really seen before. So maybe I'll start with the things that maybe are most resonant to vote solar's bottom line and likely to the audience, which is just what it does for renewable energy in Illinois. So up to this point, we had an RPS goal, a a renewable portfolio standard goal of 25% by 2025. We were not making great progress despite the gains made in the prior bill, the Future Energy Jobs Act, it was slow going. And I think to, to this day, we're only at maybe about 9% renewable energy in Illinois, and we're rapidly approaching 2022. So we've got to make up for lost time. And we did so in this bill. So the new RPS goal is actually 40% by 2030, and then 50% by 2040. And it creates the funding needed to get there it reopens all of the solar and wind you know, renewable energy credit incentive programs to get us moving quickly in that direction. 
Um, it, you know, most people point to the fact that it'll, it'll probably roughly triple the pace of renewable energy development in the state. And as you all know, with Fiji, we were developing renewables pretty quickly over the last few years. There was sort of an explosion of growth, and this is going to take that and you know at least triple it. And so within that world of renewable energy incentives, we now have some new exciting programs that spun out of this bill. One is a new incentive program for solar on schools. Uh, this was a high priority of uh, labor unions and was something that we all came to see as a, a unbelievable win-win opportunity for communities, for school districts. There's a new bucket of funding for community-driven community solar. So this is in addition to community solar that you know offers savings and subscriptions to customers, but might be a larger project built in a green field or you know on, in a, on a farmer's property. This is designed to try to create additional incentives for like a deeper sense of community ownership of community solar. So it's got certain requirements for community engagement and how. Those subscribers are actually able to interact with the project, and ideally, eventually assert a certain amount of ownership and pursue energy sovereignty of that community-owned solar. And then one of the key asks that our coalition, the Clean Jobs Coalition, brought into that room was to ensure that there was funding set aside for BIPOC contractors. We uh, saw in the explosion of features growth that. There were a lot of new businesses popping up. There were a lot of new opportunities for renewable energy companies. But by the time you know, disadvantaged contractors, by the time black and brown contractors started to enter the space, by the time they had overcome those barriers to entry that those entities always face, the wrecks had largely disappeared and those incentives were gone. And so this creates a separate channel of funding that is only accessible to what the bill defines as equity eligible contractors. Um, so it is one of the many steps that this bill takes towards equitable renewable energy development. And then the last note that I'll make within the renewable energy space, uh, it also creates this equity accountability system. So all new renewable energy credit seeking companies, essentially any entity that's working on projects that will receive these incentives, they have to commit for that first year that 10% of all the work they do will be done by equity eligible persons, which is defined in the bill. And that ramps up to 30% by 2030. So they have to be keeping track of who they're hiring, who they're deploying to certain projects, and this will help diversify solar companies and you know help nudge them in the right direction. It'll also help diversify labor unions who will be building a lot of these projects. And so it'll start to build the constructive competition to finding these equity eligible persons, to hiring them, to overcoming some of the discrimination that can occur in any sector, but is certainly present in the renewable energy world as well. Uh, and so we hope that that becomes an engine of equitable involvement and growth for the renewable energy future. And I know we don't have time to get too weedsy, but it also creates these like stakeholder-driven interconnection working groups. 
it makes a smooth transition from our current full retail net metering to a, a distributed generation rebate that uh, is a fair value of solar and offers fair compensation. And it creates a new storage incentive as well for customers who are interested in, in putting a, a battery in their system alongside that. And so <laughs> that's not even the entirety of the renewable energy side of the bill. And there are maybe seven other elements of the bill that I could dive into, but I'll maybe pull up there and see how, how, we're, uh, how we're feeling about this deep dive of, of the, clean, the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act. You are listening to the Rise Up Midwest podcast. We'll get back to the podcast after the short sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Energy News Network. From the Midwest and beyond, the Energy News Network provides daily updates on the transition to a clean energy economy. Sign up for any of their free daily regional newsletters at energynews.us. And now, back to the podcast. Yeah, it's such a sweeping bill. And, you know, the, the context, obviously, is the promise of the clean energy transition, where you know, we see this opportunity where the benefits are widely distributed. It leads to this kind of like localized economic growth, job opportunities, access for uh, more inclusion for groups that have been left out of the predominantly um, centralized energy investments and that it can benefit ratepayers over the long term. Also, there's just like this whole series of win-wins. And so kind of in that context and with how com- and sweeping the bill is, I think maybe one way we could approach this conversation is just to talk about the opportunities that this presents to like certain stakeholder groups. So I'm just going to pitch you some groups and I want you to kind of react and say, yeah, I think this is, this is how this affects these groups. So I think we'll just start simply with home and business owners, you know, the, the, the folks that, that are really make up all the communities out there and that pay electric bills and that are the ratepayers that are going to pay this all back. So how does this bill kind of present opportunities? How does it impact kind of the average home business owner in Illinois? The, the bill itself, and I, I suspect we'll talk about how it was built and how it was created, but it was largely built by the people of Illinois through a series of listening sessions throughout the state. And a lot of those were just ratepayers who wanted to hold utilities accountable and wanted to see the benefits of the equitable clean energy future and also didn't want to see an increase in energy burden and didn't want to see a big change to the way that they pay their bills. And so for those customers, for the average residential customer, I guess there's a few things that I'll note that emerged from those like ideation sessions and then became tangible law. One is just the opportunities for distributed energy resources. So for, for any of you who are listening and live in Illinois uh, and have not gone solar yet, now is definitely the time. Uh, the, the bill creates unbelievable incentives for you to do so because it recognizes that by going solar, you are benefiting the grid. You are helping your neighbors. You are putting a mini power plant on your roof to help fuel the region of the electric grid that your home or your residence or your business is in. And so it provides those incentives and it makes it an easy decision for you to go solar. 
and so encourage you to go out and, and explore those options and reach out to companies and learn more. Um, but there are a few other things that will emerge from this bill that should make this an even easier decision. One is a new on-bill financing mechanism that is built off of the pay-as-you-save model that's gaining traction in a lot of places where you, uh, as the customer, as the, the homeowner, instead of having to take out a loan, instead of having to take on debt, you are essentially financing some sort of energy upgrade on your home through your utility meter and on your utility bills. And so the utility would pay for that upgrade and then you would slowly pay the utility back by just paying your electric bill. But the beauty of this system is that you are immediately saving money because that energy upgrade saves more money than those monthly payments cost. And so if you can imagine, you know, if you have an old and leaky furnace and you want to switch over to an electric heat pump and make your home more comfortable and cheaper to operate, you may be able to qualify for this type of pay-as-you-save program, which is called the Equitable Energy Upgrade Program in, in the bill, where that might cut your energy bill in half, but your your bills each each month would be at maybe 75% of where they were before as you slowly pay that back until you own it. So it's immediate savings that accumulate over time that allow certainly a lot of energy efficiency upgrades that will save customers a bunch of money. But also we believe we've structured in such a way that there will be opportunities to finance renewable energy resources like rooftop solar through an upgrade program like that. And Honestly, that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the inclusive financing mechanisms in this bill. There's a separate green bank that this creates uh, called the Clean Energy Jobs and Justice Fund, which is given as part of its mission and vision the mandate to create financing opportunities for residential customers. So along similar lines, if you want to create an energy update, if you want to put something on your house, if you want to go solar, if you want new windows... There are going to be different places that you can go to in addition to finding really cost competitive solar and clean energy loans on the open market. There's now these Illinois born and raised inclusive financing mechanisms that will help make that decision even easier. So that's a, a big part of just you know those who want to embrace the clean energy future are going to be well supported through these policies. But even those that don't will benefit. And that's for a few different reasons. One is just utility accountability. So a lot of this bill was born out of this political crisis where it became more clear than ever before that utilities weren't always playing fair uh, and were often writing their own rules. And so we took this as an opportunity to change the way that utilities charge customers the way that they create electric rates and uh, we've replaced this sort of rubber stamp formula rate that we've had in Illinois for a long time with this sweeping new set of performance-based rate making principles and what that means is essentially utilities will have to pursue the most climate friendly and cost effective and just and equitable way forward 
in a way that doesn't just allow them to gold plate investments and to reap a lot of profit on the backs of ratepayers. Um, so it stops that transition of funding from ratepayers to shareholders, and it should stop it in its tracks and really change the game on that. And then the last point I'll make is on top of all of those changes, on top of just the savings that are inherent in the renewable energy transition and the decentralized energy transition for all ratepayers, we do have specific provisions in the bill for low-income ratepayers. So it directs the Illinois Commerce Commission, the main regulatory body in Illinois, to explore a low-income rate, to actually have a separate rate class for low-income customers and to create new ways of reducing energy burden. It ends late payments for all low-income customers, uh, and it ensures that those performance mechanisms reward or incentivize utilities to go even further to reducing energy burden. And so once you combine those features for every ratepayer with the quintupling of our Illinois Solar for All program, which I'm sure I could spend a whole separate 10 minutes just talking about that, you have this ecosystem of support that's going to reduce energy burden, that's going to support low-income ratepayers, and ultimately is going to make our electricity a lot cheaper over time as we make this transition. Wow. I think the more that you talk, the more I can see why you're so excited about it. Um, first of all, I have never considered myself as ever moving to Illinois, but it's looking real enticing at this moment. Um, so that should be saying something, I think. Second, I did want to uh, expand. I know we talked about homes and businesses and how this affects them. And you started touching on utility stuff by talking about the ethic reform, some of the strictest in the nation that are included in this as well. I'm wondering if you could add to how utilities as a stakeholder group have been impacted by this, touching on the nuclear and coal aspects as well. Yeah. And it, I think we've, we've spent some time talking about product, but it makes sense to look at process a little bit because again, it has been an interesting path to get to where we are. So the bottom line is that utilities weren't in the room. They weren't at the table and they weren't, they certainly weren't driving this process, which is a departure from what I've seen in other states. It's a departure from what I've gathered from Illinois bills in, in the past. Um, and it allowed us to create a lot of these new programs and initiatives that utilities probably aren't especially fond of, uh, including some of these ethics reforms, including, you know, new watchdog entities at the Illinois Commerce Commission, including requiring them to have their own chief compliance and ethics officers. Um, so there's a whole new world emerging in Illinois, and it's largely because the power that the utilities hold was largely neutralized. Um, the, the thing that people most often point to when they think of the role that utilities played in this process is the nuclear plants in Illinois that were at risk of closing. So, uh, one of the interesting side effects of having a deregulated state is that the 
the generating units, our, our power plants in Illinois are privately owned. So, you know, Exelon, which is the parent company of ComEd, our, our biggest utility in Illinois, they own a fleet of nuclear plants and they're a privately owned company that uh, has shareholders and is looking at their bottom line and is prioritizing that. And they came to realize that these nuclear plants in Illinois were no longer profitable. And so they were going to shut them down. And so in giving that information to the state and in making the labor unions who represent those workers aware of what might lie ahead in helping to make legislators aware of what the consequences of those plants shutting down would look like and in bringing this to the governor's attention so that he would understand the impact that immediate closure of those large nuclear plants would have on our transition to clean energy, it became clear that this was a matter of public policy. And so if the utilities had been in the room, they may have taken the whole thing hostage and asked for however much money they pleased in order to support those nuclear plants. Instead, the governor of Illinois issued a third-party report. He had consultants look deeply at the books of these plants and figure out like, what is the minimum amount that they need to stay open without padding their pockets. Like, what, what does this actually look like? Uh, and so, you know, we, we held them accountable every step of the way. And the result is good policy for Illinois. It's a good step towards our clean energy future to keep those plants online while we are building out renewable energy to avoid a massive build out of gas and other fossil assets. And so the utilities certainly played a role in helping to inform certain stakeholders about what's at stake, about what certain elements of the bill might do to them. But as somebody who watched this process very closely, was often in the room or at the table or at least having close visibility on it, they weren't there. And that's how so much of this new paradigm of utility accountability and ethics reform was able to make its way through. You're listening to the Rise Up Midwest podcast. We'll get back to the podcast after the short sponsor break. Want to increase sales on every project? Now offer homeowners best-in-class solar and battery storage in one high-powered bundle, all from one company you know you can trust. Panasonic's new Evervolt series solar panels are available in up to 380-watt models and work with their Evervolt battery storage to deliver the total home energy system. Plus, back your work with a complete 25-year solar warranty guaranteed by one of America's most trusted brands, Panasonic. And now, back to the podcast. That's great uh, context with the utility, and one of the things I think that it presented such an opportunity and makes Illinois unique, and you alluded to that um, when you started talking about one of the, I guess, almost unforeseen benefits of the deregulated uh, market you know, in the, in that context, what often um, is really a, a critical decision point in this just energy transition is, you know, the workforce that works at nuclear plants or Prairie State Coal Campus or or other plants that might be affected. And you know, as we see throughout the country, 
you know, those are high paying union jobs. Usually, you know, the, the, the largest stakeholders that the IBW serves are are union electricians and those inside linemen and um, electricians that work in those plants are the, the highest paid and the, the most numerous. And so they often have a lot of sway. So I guess, you know, the next stakeholder group um, that I'd like to hear you talk about is just workers and, you know, including the, the utility workers, but just workers in general. Um, you know, what job opportunities does this bill present and how, how does it do that? Yeah, it's a great question. And it became such a, a fascinating dynamic here in Illinois. Uh, if you drive around Illinois, it's hard uh, not to see signs in people's front yard that says proud union home. And I think that reflects the state overall. We are a proud union state that uh, there are a lot of organized labor entities that are very powerful and represent the voices of workers. Part of the difficulty in that process and in engaging workers and labor unions in this march towards climate justice is that a lot of those labor unions, they represent the workers of today. And in today's energy economy, a lot of those workers are working at fossil fuel plants. And it's a lot harder for those entities to represent or to imagine the workers of tomorrow. They, they know, and they say this publicly, that they, they know this transition is inevitable. They know that climate mitigation and climate action is necessary. And they know that just sheer market economics are pushing fossil fuel plants off the grid, that they are retiring coal plants all across the country, all across the region, and that gas plants won't be too far behind. So I think they know that this transition is inevitable, but it is their job as labor unions and as representatives of those workers to fight tooth and nail to protect those jobs. That is what they are built to do. And so to have that dynamic in Springfield and as part of this energy negotiation was great in that we had the perspective of workers, but was often challenging because it was the perspective of fossil workers and of you know the current workers. And so where I think it became extremely helpful is all of the parts of the bill that focus on just transition. And what, what I mean by that is, you know, these programs and policies that create opportunities for those fossil workers, for those labor workers to find a new path and to explore new opportunities in the clean energy future. And so a few of the things that the bill does along those lines, it creates a fossil worker bill of rights. So there are now statutory requirements for fossil plants to make their employees aware of their business plans and of any potential closures well in advance of that closure happening. So what we've seen time and time again is these plants pretend, these generators pretend to support their workers and they care deeply about them. But then, you know, when the business uh, decision comes and when it's time to declare bankruptcy or to retire a plant, they leave those workers high and dry. And so this provides an additional transparency, those, those requirements of those companies to disclose that information 
to the communities they're in, to the workers that are in those plants, and to the unions that represent those workers. And that's the first key step in ensuring that just transition is just transparency and awareness. Once that transparency and awareness is there, you then have all of these other programs in the bill designed to make that a smoother transition. So there are fossil community support grants um, that are designed to help with you know, the lost tax revenue that could come from a plant closing to help that community transition. You, you have scholarships for the children of fossil workers to go to Illinois state-based colleges. You have these like community climate planning initiatives and some grant money that comes with that that supports those communities in trying to think about what comes next in their clean energy future. And you even have a coal to solar program within the bill to try to bring large scale solar and large scale storage to those places where there's already the grid infrastructure to have it and to host it. And we believe that a lot of those workers who have those skills, who have worked in the energy sector for a long time, will make great candidates for those new opportunities and those new jobs. So that was where we worked closely with labor and where there was a lot of benefits to having workers in the room. Where it became a bit of a challenge was in planning for a schedule of, of decarbonization, of, of transitioning away from fossil plants uh, and to creating this tempo of a carbon-free Illinois by 2045. And that was a challenge because if you put yourself in the shoes of those workers, you know, they probably 10 years ago had planned to work in that plant until they retired in 40 years. And now it's looking, again, largely just due to sheer economics, but also because of the urgency of the climate crisis, that those jobs might not last that long. And so there was a lot of intense conversations about specific plants, about specific coal plants and gas plants. But where we landed is a carbon-free Illinois by 2045. We landed on a declining cap schedule of gas plant retirements, starting with those in environmental justice communities and working our way through the list to ensure that all gas is closed by 2045. All private coal is closed by 2030. Uh, and then there are a few publicly owned coal plants that will last a little longer. But this was the main source of tension. And that's where it was challenging to have those in the room that by their nature and by their structure had to fiercely protect those jobs. Um, because you know we, there isn't a labor union for the solar jobs that will be created in this bill or the wind jobs that will be created over the next 10 years. And most sources point to this bill creating 50,000 new renewable energy jobs by 2030. And those are going to be great high paying jobs in large part because they're now required to pay prevailing wage. And so there are going to be incredible opportunities for workers in this new energy economy. And again, <laughs> As I keep saying, this is the tip of the iceberg, and I, I'm sure I'll get the chance to talk about some of the workforce development initiatives at some point here. But it is it was challenging to, to work directly with labor unions. It was exciting to work directly with labor unions. I think the bill is better off because of that negotiation and because of that collaboration. And I'm really proud of where we landed.
So I, I take it we've gone through about 50 of the 950 pages of that so far. Uh, I, I You've touched on a couple of these topics, and I just want to make sure that everyone's a little bit on the same page, except especially for listeners outside of Illinois. Can you give us a little bit of a background on Sija's precursor, Fija, and the issues that led up to the development of the current Sija, the, the climate version of it? And I know that at one point there was two opposing sides, the path to 100 and then that original Sija. Um, so what were the differences kind of between those and how did this all splice together nicely into the current legislation? Yeah, spliced together nicely. Uh, maybe it was wishful thinking on, on our end. It was, uh, it was a, a, a turbulent road, especially over the last six months or so. But I, I do believe that like from where we were, maybe at peak with five different energy bills in the great state of Illinois, the compromise that we landed on is remarkable. And it, it borrows some of the best ideas of all of those different bills, and it excludes a lot of the bad ideas that some of those bills brought in. And so the rough timeline from FIJA to CJA, uh, FIJA passed in 2016, it was really the first big leap into the renewable energy future. It created all of our incentive programs. It started some of the workforce training initiatives. Uh, it, it provided some of that funding for our carbon-free resources in Illinois. But we all knew at that time that it was a stopgap measure and would need to be followed by an even bigger bill to provide like, more stable funding. And so... The Clean Jobs Coalition, which is a group of about 100 plus different you know, unions and businesses and environmental justice organizations and faith-based organizations and traditional you know, national environmental groups, um, all like, started this process by building the foundation of what was then called CJA, uh, the Clean Energy Jobs Act. And so that was built throughout you know, 2017, 2018, by listening to communities, by working with elected officials, by creating this, this foundation. And, and we thought we were probably aiming a little too high. I think the first bill was maybe 600 pages or so. And we knew that it had to touch everything because the climate crisis is everywhere. And so we created that foundation of a comprehensive climate bill. Around that same time, the renewable energy industry in Illinois, recognizing that the, the incentives that were created in that bill, the FIJA, the Future Energy Jobs Act, were running out, they decided it was time to push through a strong renewable energy focused bill that was fairly narrow in scope but ambitious in its uh, like scale, that it wanted to build 40% renewable energy by 2030. So that little nugget of the current bill was in that Pact 100 bill that emerged at about the same time as the Clean Energy Jobs Act. And so those bills were both in the mix uh, for some time. And then uh, over the summer of the next year, I think this is the summer of 2019, fall of 2019, no, the fall of 2020, 
the governor uh, like leapt into gear and created his own sweeping climate proposal called the Consumers and Climate First Act. So this was in many ways uh, a lot of what we had created in the Clean Energy Jobs Act, but through comprehensive stakeholder engagement, it included ideas from labor unions, it included new utility accountability metrics, and included a lot that was in the Path to 100. And so at that point we think, okay, there's, there's three bills, we'll be able to reconcile this. Along came a few more bills. So uh, the labor unions emerged with their own bill. Uh, so they had their own kind of climate-focused apparatus now called Climate Jobs Illinois that created their own fairly comprehensive climate bill. Uh, and then some utilities and generators had their own wish list. So we saw a bill from you know, that was heavily influenced by Ameren, Illinois, Another that was heavily influenced by Vistra, uh, the owner of a lot of the coal generating units in Illinois. And so we were left with this messy uh, medley of energy bills and the legislative leaders had the very challenging job of bringing all of that together. And so again, I, I hinted at the last six months, it was a lot. And uh, a huge credit to a lot of my partners at the Clean Jobs Coalition for not sleeping, <laughs> for, for spending you know, nights and weekends in Springfield working with legislators, working with labor leaders, working with renewable energy advocates, and getting to this point where we had brought those best ideas together and landed on a bill that had the votes to pass, had that same dedication to climate justice and satisfied all of those different stakeholders. So it, it was no easy feat, and I'm still in slight disbelief that it happened, but we managed to get there, and the bill became law just a couple days ago. You're listening to the Rise Up Midwest podcast. We'll get back to the podcast after the short sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by the Couillard Solar Foundation. The Couillard Solar Foundation promotes the expansion of solar energy in Wisconsin through partnerships with renewable energy-focused, Wisconsin-based organizations, including the Midwest Renewable Energy Association. Our mutual goal is to enable nonprofits across Wisconsin, schools, churches, service, and other community organizations to join the renewable energy revolution. Learn more at couillardsolarfoundation.org. And now, back to the podcast. Yeah, it's really inspiring. And I think you know, mostly inspiring to to all of those uh, good people out there that are working for similar things in their state and at the national level. And so I think it's well earned. Uh, we surely have been watching and supporting uh, this bill's passage. And, you know, from the MREA context, and you mentioned this, you know, we do a lot of solar workforce training, over a thousand people a year come through our training programs. And uh, we're really excited about not only the drive that this will make in Illinois for employment, but also some of the programs and like support elements in the legislation. And I know you're eager to talk about it. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about uh, how this bill deals with uh, workforce training and uh, associated issues in Illinois? This was a top priority for our coalition, the, the Clean Jobs Coalition. One of the things that we noticed when we were out talking with communities, learning from companies and contractors, particularly disadvantaged contractors, is that 
the barriers to entry were numerous and the opportunities felt far away that there just wasn't a clear path for the average person who may have some electrical skills or may have some interest in joining the clean energy workforce to really tap into it. FIJA, the predecessor to this bill, had created some of those workforce training programs. But what we kept hearing is people were getting trained and then couldn't find their way to a job couldn't, didn't have transportation to make it out to a bunch of greenfield projects, didn't have the stipend that they might need to participate in a training program and their off hours while they're working two jobs. And so we realized that those gaps existed. We also realized that creating jobs is, is great in and of itself, full stop, creating businesses and catalyzing new Illinois small businesses is even better if we can pull them both off in tandem. And so with those uh, things driving us forward, we created this fascinating network of workforce hubs, contractor incubators, and contractor accelerators. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is like the foundation of that are those hubs there's going to be 13 of them throughout the state of Illinois. They are going to be in specific geographies that were picked in large part because of the stakeholder engagement that our bill did and in large part due to just mapping exercises to figure out where the economic need was greatest and where those jobs might be most beneficial and match up with the builds and the new solar and wind possibilities. And so those hubs now have wraparound services. They offer you know, transportation options. They offer some home care help. They offer some stipends here and there to help make those training programs more equitable, more accessible, lowering those barriers to entry, to just get your foot in the door and to find your way towards a clean energy job. The other missing piece that I hinted at was under FIJA, those workforce programs were largely coordinated by ComEd. Uh, that was just the way that bill was written. And I'll let you all make your own assumptions about how that happened. But the money was flowing through ComEd. And so there never really was that connective tissue. So we would train people and then they wouldn't really know who was hiring for what, where the skill gaps were, where the needs were within the clean energy economy. All of this now sits with the Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity. So it's now the state's responsibility to manage these programs, to keep a database of where these opportunities are, and to build that connective tissue with employers. So that's going to be a big step in the right direction. So that's the hubs, that's the workforce side of things. I won't dwell on it too far, but it is something that I'm tremendously excited about. Those contractor uh, incubators are designed, let's say someone comes through the hubs, they want to grab a friend and do the thing, they want to get a truck and start doing some, some rooftop solar installs as a subcontractor. This is designed to help them get to that next level, to learn what is needed to create a business and to, to start doing those installations. If that company that had just emerged is interested in going one step further and becoming a project 
developer or becoming a prime contractor, you now have these accelerators in the state that are exactly what they sound like. They take a business that has already established itself and it brings them to that next level. And so all three of those programs, the hubs, the incubators, the accelerators, they're run through that state agency, the Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity. But in the language of the law, it requires them to partner with local training institutions, with community-based organizations, to ensure that that training is very place-based and is responsive to that local community. And so through that partnership between the state, between communities and community-based organizations, we think we're going to have a really terrific training ecosystem to create those clean energy workers to fill this tremendous need that we'll be creating here in Illinois. Uh, so, Jen, getting this legislation passed is absolutely amazing. And like many states around us, we are very jealous of the accomplishments that Illinois has been able to make. I wanted to give you a chance to um, let folks know where they can go learn about the remaining 875 pages of the bill that, that we didn't get to discuss or to learn more about Vote Solar, stay connected and, and get involved with, with what's going on in the state. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. So we are a like, member-driven organization in a lot of respects, and our members are uh, like often they're solar owners or they're solar workers or they they're involved in the the industry or the landscape in some way. Many aren't. A lot are just climate activists or climate curious, uh, and they just want to learn more about what comes from the renewable energy future and all the opportunities it creates. And so I would encourage you all to, to go to the Vote Solar website, which is just votesolar.org. Uh, and there are opportunities to you know, sign some petitions to get involved. Even if you're not in the Midwest, you know, we do work in all regions throughout the country. And we have active campaigns just like this one elsewhere. So I would encourage you to take a look at votesolar.org. And then if you want to take an even deeper dive, uh, as though I haven't opened up the fire hose enough, uh, the Illinois Clean Jobs Coalition website is a wealth of information. Um, and so I'll, I'll just take this as an opportunity to also just congratulate everybody else who was part of the Clean Jobs Coalition. Again, it, and it was over 100 different groups working in lockstep to get this thing done. And it wouldn't have happened without all of those groups working as hard as they did. And so I believe that website is ilcleanjobs.org. And that has some fact sheets. It has some additional information and some ways of plugging in as well if you want to join that coalition effort. Uh, but please stay in touch. I, I believe my information is on the Vote Solar website. So feel free to reach out if you have any additional thoughts or questions. But whatever you do, just find some way to get engaged. Call a lawmaker. Reach out uh, to somebody in your community and host an event. We need everybody everywhere to, to get the climate crisis resolved. So thanks for listening and, and appreciate your, your attention. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you. This Rise Up podcast was hosted by Nick Hyla and Amanda Schenebeck. Editing and sponsor copy read by Matthew Brown. Led by the Midwest Renewable Energy Association, Rise Up Midwest is a coalition of individuals, businesses, and organizations working to build support for common sense clean energy policy and market development. For past episodes and to sign up for new episode alerts, visit riseupmidwest.org.
The Rise Up podcast is provided for educational purposes. Views expressed by guests and MREA employees are their own and do not imply endorsement by the Rise Up Midwest Coalition or the MREA.